0: Hello and welcome to Think Like a Game Designer. I'm your host, Justin Gary. In this podcast, I'll be having conversations with brilliant game designers from across the industry with a goal of finding universal principles that anyone can apply in their creative life. You can find episodes and more at thinklikeagamedesigner.com. In today's episode, I speak with Reiner Kanizia. Reiner may be the most prolific board game designer in the world with over 700 published Games. He is highly acclaimed. He's won the Spiel des Jahres. He's won a ton of amazing awards. He is actually the first game designer who I really fell in love with. His processes, his thoughts, his efficiency and sophistication and elegance of his designs are absolutely unparalleled. Getting to speak with people like Reiner and getting to hear his insights and learn from him is one of the joys of doing this podcast. In this episode, we talk about his process for design, how he ideates, how he prototypes, how he playtests, the differences between working on electronic games versus tabletop games, the types of retreats that he takes, how games are a mirror for our lives. We talk a little bit about auction mechanics and drafting and bidding. We talk about trends and how you should think about trends and innovation. We get into so many great principles. It is everything I'd hoped for. We only had an hour, so we had to make as much in that time as we could. I could have spoken to him for at least another hour or two. So I will stop talking here with my preamble and I will let us get into my incredible conversation with the legendary Reiner you. Hello and welcome. I am here with Reiner Kinesia. Reiner, it is such an honor to have you here. Thank you for joining me today.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me.
0: Yeah. So I have to say, you were kind of, you know, if you could say, uh, you were my first game designer crush, my first game designer idol before I started working in this industry. Um, I was so impressed by your games. I felt so in love with the elegance of the mechanics and the breadth of the work that you had done. So um, having you on this podcast is definitely a, a dream come true for me. Um, i've've I've seen on your website you have over seven hundred games uh, that you've designed, which is a, a kind of astonishingly large number. Um, and I, I want to dig into some of that process and some of the specifics there. Um, but I, I just what I don't actually know your origin story. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how you got into games originally and then kind of maybe we'll take some principles from there that have applied as we as we go into your design career.
1: Well, the wonderful thing about our industry, and different from many other industries i worked in uh, uh, i.t and i worked in banking uh, different to other industries is that we all come together with very different backgrounds but with the love for the product that means with the love for the games uh, and so i probably started out as everybody else uh, who found their way into the industry with loving games loving to play games and in my specific case i grew up in a small town in southern germany and at that time Uh, The only shop in town which sold games was the Barber. Uh, He didn't have um, too many uh, games to select from, and the pocket money was always not sufficient. So I very, very soon actually started designing my own games about themes which excited me, car racing, whatever you could imagine. Uh, And I played it with my friends. I didn't write up the rules, so some of these are completely lost in uh, mysteries like the old uh, ancient games. Um, And... That's how it started. That's how I got a lot of experience. You know, it's people say about, I think, Malcolm Gladwell uh, says that you need 5,000 or 10,000, however people put it, hours uh, to get to, in inverted commas, mastery. So I think I got these hours in relatively early.
0: Yeah, so I think that's that's great. And I, I find that the, the, you know, I like the 10,000 hours uh, principle but i have always modified it in my thinking where it's not just 10,000 hours it's it's really the right kinds of hours right where you're able to get feedback and iterate and learn and so you a lot of people don't cross that barrier right where they're you know they'll have an idea lots of people have great ideas but when it comes to actually testing it and refining it to turn it into something that's usable and to learn and craft your skill a lot of people don't cross that barrier and it sounds like you did that from a you know early on even without professional you know, you weren't making money doing it, you were just kind of doing it and pushing it. Was there? What was it about either your personality or the group you're with, or how did you get into that process of kind of iterating and refining or what, what brought you to that mindset?
1: I mean, it was really the love of playing many different games and the excitement of playing and not having enough uh, resources, so I made them myself. Uh, And one has to be honest. The very early games have never been published. Some of them have been lost and they should never have been published. They they should not be published because uh, they needed goodwill. So if one of these uh, games was there was a castle on either end it was a two player game and there was a river with bridges and you marched with your knights but if one player didn't want to play then just stayed in his or her castle and uh, then the game was no fun and didn't really work so but for this it was fine because we wanted to play um, and it were indi- it were individual games and big advantage which you usually don't have, I was always present. So we could explain things and we could change things. Whereas one of the very big challenges, and that's where you say iterative and testing and so on. Uh, The one very big challenge if you are publishing is that you need to make the game really robust so that when people open it, uh, the game, then the fun needs to come out. So I, I always say, I work in the entertainment industry. We all do but I haven't got the easy job. And I'm not saying it's a really easy job. I haven't got the easy job of staying, of standing in front of the, the, the public on the stage and can immediately interact with them and see their reactions and can steer things to the right direction. No, it's, um, I put my entertainment in the boxes, and when people open the box, I'm not there. I cannot say, no, 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 that's not meant like this. So that means testing with lots of different groups, and seeing where the game goes and uh, making it uh, rounded and I call it robust, um, so that it works for the target group. Games never works for everybody, but that's fine because nothing can be everything to everybody.
0: Yeah, there's there's so many great insights in there, right? Yeah, knowing that you're building toward your target audience, um, being able to test with that robust uh, group to see what happens. Have you, I mean, I know I've had this experience with my own games where I get to do the kind of one-way mirror testing, uh, which is incredibly painful to watch people just You know not understand what seems so obvious to you but uh is not is not the case there when you're testing with these other groups are you you know kind of standing silently in the background are you do you have a series of groups that you you cycle through and they already know not to ask you questions or how do you how do you cultivate that type of testing environment to really test for robustness and 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 what principles do you apply there yeah
1: we actually, or I actually, have a very narrow test principle. Uh, it's always a group of one, two, three, four, five people, and I would always playing in that group. I believe I have to experience uh, the game and the fun uh, and, and play with the group. Um, and then I can be a full part of the discussions and everything afterwards, because if you don't feel it, it's very difficult. So I'm, I'm not doing blind tests and I'm sending the games away. But of course, I'm aware that I could make the game funny and interesting, just putting my personality into full extent and teasing people and making jokes and so on. That, of course, will not be when people open the box. So I will very much uh, refrain from that and be more the, A bit of the passive player. It depends in which stage the game is, yes, when testing. But uh, I will play, but I will leave the leading role to the other players.
0: Got it. Okay. So you're, you are in the game, but you're sort of, you know, taking a back seat, more just sort of observing. And, and, and my, my assumption here is that your instincts are, are really just fine tuned to where people are getting confused. And so you're able to intuit that even without necessarily a hundred percent removing you from that situation. You also
1: see that I'm not writing the final rules for the game. I always write my rules for the publishers. Usually, there are exceptions, but usually my game designs will not even have a publisher when they are created. And then I would go and find a publisher. And and as I, at the start of the design process, don't even know what kind of game comes out very often, um, then it's very difficult to decide. Of course, sometimes we would do an expansion. We would do a, a second game in a series on the brand. And then I would write the rules in the style which has been published, yes. And then it is more important to understand it. But that's, in my eyes, more the responsibility for the publisher. They have their style and make sure that that comes over. However, that is a big point of grief for me because I I, I must say that, in my experience, there are not many publishers who can write really good rules, And... When we hear in the public, oh, these games are too complicated, I don't understand the rules, I must say, no, it's not the problem of the players, it's the problem of the publishers, and I'm not excluding myself in the problem of the designers to make sure that their rules get understood. And, of course, that cycles back to when I write up rules to make sure that I, and, and this is a good position, that I actually define my rules and the processes so that they can easily be written up. So my first write-up of the rules would happen very early, sometimes even before the game has played for the first time. And that already shows me, if I can't say simple things in two sentences, then something is wrong with the layout of uh, of the design. Uh, And very very often, it also guides me to say, how can I make this simpler, and guides me in my design processes.
0: Yes, no, that, I think that's just a wonderful principle that writing down the rules early, not necessarily because they're going to be re- finalized that way, because they're certainly not, but to help refine, hey, how complicated is this game? How easy is it to explain? Um, yeah. And and I also try to, for my side, I also at the early on try to write like, you know, the kind of the hook of the game, right? What's the elevator pitch? What's the, the heart of like, what's going to be exciting about it? Because if I can't explain that in two sentences, then I'm also off track, right? Yeah, why why are the... you playing and how do you play?
1: I would write right. down the, the the full rules actually. Um, so this this has two reasons. One is when I get into the second stage of designing, which is playtesting. Of course, we need a prototype. The prototype I'm doing looks relatively. Nice already. So there would be clip art on it. It's of course not original artwork. There would be clip art on it. The cards, boards would all be laid out how I see it to be laid out. Yes, it doesn't have to be masterpieces of, of artwork, but it is there. And when we play it, um, when I change things, I would also see mm, this is misleading. This is uh, not the right color. Oh, these two characters look the same. So there are lots of things which get it's not just. Um, the the mechanic, it's the whole appearance and the whole uh, coming together of all aspects of the game in an iterative process. And that is, of course, also the rules, and therefore the rules will be adjusted. And uh, it also the other important thing of that is I have my famous, everybody's heard about them, or many people have heard about them, my famous drawers, many drawers uh, where I have all my designs in, And sometimes it happens that uh, a game gets into the background because other things get priorities. And if you go back after three months to a game and you have played it in many different versions and you haven't got a write-up, you have no hope of finding out what was the latest version you played in.
0: Yes, yes. No, that, that is certainly valuable. But I, I actually want to dig in because uh, I, I agree 100% and, and the rules uh, tips on, on writing up the rules are, are great. I what I, I want to make sure I heard you correctly. So when you're even for your very first testing of a game, you will make a nicer prototype that's that laid out, you, you'll actually invest some time and energy into making it look nice and feel the way you would want it to. Um, a lot of times uh, both myself and a lot of the guests I've had on this podcast kind of take the opposite approach, right? They try to make as quick and dirty a prototype as mm-hmm. possible to reduce your investment in something you know is going to change. Can you talk to me a little bit about why you invest that way? And I mean, again, you, you're so you're the most prolific designer I think I've ever talked to. So I, I'm curious then how do you create so much if you're investing so much in those early prototypes?
1: Well, it is a strength and a weakness as many times. Um, there is a danger to fall in love with your brainchild initially and invest much research and much thinking about details and when it comes on the table that you see that uh, the basic principles do not work yes so uh, that's I mean this is mainly about the first part of the design where everything happens in the head so it's for me, it's sitting there, closing my eyes, seeing myself in a play test situation, in a game situation. Uh, so I have a player to the left, a player to the right, and it's my turn. And so I see the elements there, I and I, I just think about what do I do in my turn? Because a game consists of turns and interesting turns, and why is it interesting to play? Why do I have many choices? Why can I take a decision timely? Because I have other players. What do I do when the next player takes their turn? Am I just sitting and waiting? So it, it happens in my head, and of course, my games when they come to the stage always play perfectly in my head, and then comes the moment of truth. <laughs>
0: so, uh,
1: so, but but they are well thought through and they are well discussed uh, when they come to paper. But yeah. for me, I cannot separate the appearance of the game from the the soul of the game because uh, i would when i design a game i sit in front of the pc and i design the board and design the pieces and it all goes to at the same time and so a lot of times the design aspects the physical design aspects will influence the the, the software, so to speak, the, the, the mechanisms, and vice versa, it just gets one whole integrated thing. It's not you; you design something, and then thereafter you have to press it in its uh, its in its closing. So the closing grows with it. Uh, and I've seen many times that I mean, even down to. I'm currently working on an electronic game again, and you also have a, a board with many different locations, and even the naming of the locations, and how do I show it? Oh, this sounds like this, and how do I show, let's say, a cathedral, and why does this look like a monastery, and can I differentiate it? Will players know the difference? And So, and so. there's a lot flowing in in this process, which makes it very easy for me when I've reached a final stage then to make a final prototype of it. one of Some of the horror things are when I use uh, easy materials When it's a card game and I have standard cards and we play and then the game is finished. And then I need to start doing all the graphics and so on and say, well, will that really work? And then you're always in this because you're not then testing the graphics and testing the appearance with it. And I try to test everything at the same time. So this is... I think this is a strength when designing things, but it is also a weakness as I started out because you can go down a lot of blind alleys and you can waste a lot of time. It's fun, but you can waste a lot of time by over-perfectionizing, it's not even a word, by being (laughs) over-perfectionate on aspects which later play no role, and yes.
0: Yeah, yeah, well I mean I I don't think you can escape from uh going down rabbit holes and dead ends in the design process. I think it's it's an interesting so what I what it what what I heard is that you're you seem particularly skilled at being able to do those early early iterations in your head and do the mental play tests to kind of work through kinks to get to the point where your your physical prototypes can be a little bit more refined than most people's first first prototypes. And I I'm 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 very uh actually So there's, there's a couple of things I'd want to, I'd want to dig through. Now you have, you know, you mentioned your drawers, which I've, I've heard about, but maybe it's worth talking a little bit about for those in the audience that haven't. And understanding, you know, what the sort of pipeline looks like for you from kind of inspiration to, you know, how long you spend in the mental prototyping process to a physical prototype, just kind of walking through a little bit. You know, I think you, you, I've heard elsewhere, you have five or six games operative at a time, just a little bit more in the kind of granularity of how that process flows for you.
1: Man, I used to have fifty drawers, uh, and then the pandemic came along, and we couldn't test. So then I simply secretly bought another (laughs) fifty, and so (laughs) it's uh, it's a plague. Because my issue is not to have good ideas when you when you are with your mind in the in the game design world. You you have lots of ideas and you explore something, you have another idea and opportunities come up and then a publisher wants something and so it's the initial idea and that it's not just a five minutes thought, it is going into it and having something which will, which can become a prototype, sometimes it's not yet a prototype, Yes, Uh, will go into one of these drawers. So this is the absolute fun bit, to think of something new and uh, to, to create it. The what then becomes a bottleneck is to find enough time to go through this whole design process and make, I always say a perfect product out of that. And that takes a long time that goes sometimes over years and certainly many months. And uh, of course, no sane person, not even I being non-sane can (laughs) work on so many games. So for me, I work on games when the game comes onto the table at least once a week. And well, we are uh, playtesting post-pandemic, so we are playtesting almost every day again. And that means I see many different groups that makes uh, the game robust, as we discussed. Um, And I can drive processes quite quickly because every day would be a different group. Uh, that means, uh, and then of course, when we play an evening uh, or a Sunday afternoon, Saturday afternoon, uh, a session is usually four or five hours. So it's not only one game. We would play more than one game, uh, and then these will be on the run. And then I, after play testing it with more the core group, which are experienced players, I would also play the game, of course, with a target group, so kids or families, and. Uh, That means not every game can be played at all instances. And that means usually there are four or five games on the making within a week. And then some will fall behind, some others come up. And uh, of course, there is, as as I mentioned, I'm currently working on electronic games. So that's a big hole at the moment because that takes a lot of time. It's a lot of fun. I mean, I I used to... uh, be responsible for ITs so of banking and so on, which is different to making making a, a electronic simulator on on a laptop uh, to reflect the game. But it it, it 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 takes me into the zone, and then I'm lost for some days in that zone. But that brings me to the other point. When you said, you "Well, know, what's the what's the flow and what's the priorities and what comes to the foreground in these drawers." Um, there are of course these which are in final stages where essentially the tuning is on very minute and little details and these do not need much preparation so we play them one evening i look at them for an hour and change some things and then can be played next evening these are the final ones then there are the early ones where it uh, it really uh, cracks uh, enormously and you have enormous earthquakes after every play and you need to redo a lot of things and that takes much more time um, and so I would have those and these. The The main part and that's the real challenge is that I have of course some I have color codings on these drawers I have some drawers which I believe have ideas, principles um, and projects in there which could be more groundbreaking. I mean, that's always the ambition. You want to do something which revolutionizes the industry. Of course, not every design can do it. And if you manage to do it every now and then, I think you have to be very, I have to be very happy. Um, But there are some in there. And this is the point which you cannot really do uh, when the games is also business, so there is uh, there's not only sitting there and dreaming of gains, yes, so there are contracts, there are uh, approvals of things, there are royalty reports, there are thousands of things, they're up to taxes, yes. So thousands of things uh, which get into the way and really having time for working on these bigger designs, even so I do it full time, I realize that I need to go away, I need to leave the operational business and I frequently take two weeks out, go somewhere offsite to a different location, take some kind of a holiday cabin or something. I don't test there; I just be there by myself, and I will then deeply work from early to late with and have the mind full with these with these uh, designs. And uh, people always think I go on holiday. Uh, I don't because. i come back after these two weeks i need a holiday Uh, it's design when it grabs you is is really taking up all your energy and it's it's nothing else has place in 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 during that time because the mind is full and i'm completely depleted of everything else i can't take any decisions i can't do anything because everything melts into this design so Many different aspects, what comes up at what times, Then, when the fares come up, of course, then uh, there are other things to be done than, than designing. But it's uh, the challenge is really to find enough time, testing time and thinking time, to move those designs on which are most promising. And that's the advantage, and then I'll finish my long answer, and that's the advantage of 100 drawers, because those who don't fly that nicely, they just lie in a drawer, and then you find that, oh, I haven't looked at this one for half a year or a year, so then you take it out and you either kill it uh, or you you work on it again. But So at least it avoids the danger of falling in love with some of the designs which do not work out or the sunk cost fallacy. Yes, I've invested so much time. It has to work now. This is naturally a natural selection process. All the ones which are exciting and work best come to the forefront
0: yeah no there's definitely a huge advantage of having a lot of projects running at a time you're much less precious of any given given one and i think i i just want to underscore that importance of carving out that time for the deep work and the deep design work and uh you know cultivating regular testing and opportunities Those things are 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 absolutely critical and so it's 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 amazing that you've you've dialed that into such a degree i um I could talk about the process stuff forever, but I want to jump on the thread. Um, You've talked about electronic games a couple of times. Um, You've designed a few of those over the years. You're working on more clearly now. How do you think about the process of making an electronic-based game versus a normal tabletop game? How does that differentiate in your mind in terms of how you approach that project?
1: Well, if you really look into digital games, meaning uh, apps on the smartphones or you know, other online play games, that's a very different world to uh, the board games. Uh, and these different worlds are two different industries almost. They don't really overlap from the publisher side. Very few overlap there. And uh, so... Uh, The the real digital side is more a windfall or a side product on ours that games get taken over into apps and made playable online. Uh, I have done some uh, designs for apps and they were very educational for me to see what's required there. When I'm talking about electronic games, I'm more talking uh, starting point the board game and then enhancing it with electronic aspects. Probably the most well-known of, of our games is uh, Who Was It? It won the Children's Game of the Year and the German Children's Game Prize in 2008. And it's still our, not, well, it is over the time our best-selling game of all times. So that's uh, it's an expensive game um, and it has sold many copies. Uh, but it's fascinating because you're still sitting around the table, you are playing And it's simple enough through the electronics, through the software that kids can play, but it's also interesting for families. And you are playing in a cooperative game, so even the more little ones can be helped because you can naturally help them because you have an interest interest to help them, not an interest to not let them lose, but to help them support your cause of winning. And so there are lots of interesting aspects you can do with the with the electronics uh, in there because it it creates the atmosphere, it takes away all the complicated stuff, accounting, and uh, it makes much more variety because you don't have to handle it. The administration goes out of the game process. So there are many good opportunities. And then people ask me always, well, are the digital games the death of the board games? No, not at all. I mean, um, our games are a mirror of, our lives and our lives is full of electronics I mean look at your washing machine look whatever you want to look at there is electronics in there yes uh, but nevertheless you're still doing your washing by putting it into the machine yes and so um, I think there is big opportunities to enhance place there are not too many publishers who go this route and it needs to be very well chosen because there's a risk there's a higher investment but uh, there are opportunities there. Of course, people have been burned by uh, using uh, smartphone apps for games because burden of the burden afterwards is that the publisher needs to keep that alive. And I have a nice game of mine here where the publisher, after very few years, has given up to maintain the uh, the app. And so the game is completely unplayable. So this is, uh, this is a dangerous bit of taking the so-called easy route in taking the standard available hardware software. So I'm more convinced of having real specific hardware software in there because then the game is forever. It just plays um, and you can much more than look at what you need. And that is essentially the secret. When, for my secret, when I, I look at digital games, I first of all explore completely the digital or whatever else the, the additional part is the complete possibilities and the potential of these, uh, m- this medium, because I want to use it 100%. Uh, we pay for it, it's an extra cost, and so I want to squeeze out as much as I can, so that it starts with the understanding of this, and then bringing this to the foreground.
0: So this will, you're sort of taking what the new medium provides and sort of turning that around in your head in the design process and saying, OK, how do I get the most out of this piece since this is the thing I'm investing in? Um, that makes a lot of sense. I'm actually curious, uh, in some sense, uh, uh selfishly here because so richard garfield and i co-created a game called soulforge fusion which uses digital um printing right to be able to create algorithmic one-of-a-kind cards and decks and i'm curious if you have spent any time thinking about that technology and the design space there and if that's of something of interest to you
1: i have not been working on that specific uh technology the printing technologies um i know there's a publisher here in southern germany who well, it's Ludofact, um, who has uh, does a lot of production here and who has, I think they also have a factory in, in America, who have the printing abilities. And I actually got a tour to see what the possibilities are. Um, but it's, you know, it's not just the possibility of, I can do that. It's also finding the right publisher who then wants to do that because if you go into a very specific technology, specific production method, uh, the range of publishers you can approach, it gets more uh, narrow and it's best to start also with, out with a publisher, yes, and then uh, the range gets... gets, uh, And then you are getting into a project where you almost have to do it because you're committed to doing it, you're a publisher on board. So uh, giving a, a, a long answer, which I could have done shortly or much shorter, uh, no, I've not worked on this uh, specific part which you're exploring with Richard, uh, but the important thing is I think it is very important that you find something innovative as an entry point, and then start the design of it. There are lots of different entry points, so you found a nice and interesting one. Keep at it, and uh, Richard is certainly not unexperienced in uh, yes in what he's doing on the card <laughs> side. Yes,
0: yes, yes. And so I um uh well let's uh, there's a lot of places to go here. Um, let's talk about the card side for a minute. Um, you know when it comes to you know we talked about. Uh, Richard, obviously, you know, innovated the trading card game category. I have found uh, one of your games uh, that I really enjoyed, uh, Blue Moon, that felt like your take on a trading card game to me. Mm -hmm. It felt like the kind of heart, you know, there was some rules for customization. There were factions. There was a simplicity to it that was your elegance. Is that kind of what was an inspiration for you for that? I'd love to know more about that project and how you thought about building something that was, you know, a boxed game that also had its own customization mm-hmm. kind of built in.
1: Yeah. Um I had one go at uh, trading card games, or collectible card games. It wasn't that one, it was uh, what then ended up as the Lords series uh, series as Fantasy Flight, so the Lord games. Um mm. but the feedback I got from Fantasy Flight at that time Chris Peterson said, "Well, Your designs are not suited for uh, collectible card games. Your designs are too balanced. And uh, (laughs) in collectible game, you of course need an imbalance, then you make the next generation of cards, you introduce new imbalances so that the metagame works, yes. And I, I think it is very important to understand where your abilities lie and where you are not so strong. And I certainly am not strong. Well, I've never really tried, but I think it would be foolish for me to think that I, I have done some successful games, so now I will do a, a collectible card game. Uh, there is Jack um, uh, Welch once says, don't compete where you don't have a competitive advantage. I think I would not have a competitive advantage on that one. Um, so, coming back to so one doesn't have to do everything and one has to say there one's limitations. It doesn't matter how many games you have published, uh, uh, nobody can do everything. Yes, And that's good And uh, it's just understanding your limitations and not trying to go into fields where you are completely ignorant. Yes, and then but feel you are the master. Um, So now back to back to Blue Moon. Blue Moon was not intended to be a collectible card game. Blue Moon actually started out as the idea of building an own thematic universe the whole universe of the blue moon and the people in the blue moon and everything that happens. And so there's quite a bit of... Uh, there has even been a, 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 a whole book of fiction wrote, written about the blue moon story. And we tried to build that into the, into the games. So... The idea was really to have these different uh, peoples playing against each other and with the story background and makes them very different. What we did not understand is how much testing that actually needed, because every people needs to be tested against everyone as soon as you change when you need to do the other one. And I remember that uh, David Farkar, Uh, got very much, unfortunately, late David Farker, got very much involved into playtesting this. He played it a whole year long, every lunch break, and every people against another people and so on. So that was very test intense, Um, but it was a great experiment and a great learning because it was kind of touching something different, coming from a different angle, coming from the story, uh, building these individual things which you can combine. um, by far not as complex as collectible card games, but but um, yeah, I had enough of a challenge with it.
0: Well, well, it, it's interesting to me. So you know, you talked about kind of going where you have a competitive advantage, and you know, I think it, my uh, interpretation of, of of a lot of your work is one of your, you know, world class strengths is that that ability to distill things down to their essence and really present something in a very core and refined way and that's why blue moon struck me because i felt like it was a really you know it distills a lot of the things forget the balance side that's i don't that's not as important to me right now that it distilled a lot of the, the the joy of that experience into something that's very refined and i've heard you say this in terms of you know you're describing yourself as a scientist and is that kind of what what is it what does it take to kind of when you're approaching things and this may not be an easy question to answer so so feel free to pivot if not but this idea that you know, how do you refine that concept down? How do you take most designers? What well, they start with something and they make it more complex. And it feels like you're able to take something that can be very complex, whether it be a legacy game concept or you know, card game concept or a drafting concept, and bring it into something that just like sings and is 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 like a, a really polished diamond. How, how does that work for you? How do you think about that sort of thing?
1: Well, this is the great thing again about our industry that people come with many different backgrounds and. Uh, As you said, I'm the scientist, I've studied mathematics. I I have a scientific mind. And of course, science tries to bring uh, order into things by generating or discovering introducing general principles and that's what i like to try with my with my rules so i want to introduce general principles rules very simple but the depth of play comes from the interaction of the players there are other people who are more the storyteller so i reduce redundancy there are the storytellers and the other people who increase redundancy and blow the things up and my design sometimes are felt as abstract um, but you have very little administration to do. In the bigger designs, you have lots of event cards, lots of these thematic cards, lots of these even- thematic happens. For me, this is a kind, to my taste, and tastes are very different. There's no better or worse taste. Uh, these are too overwhelming for me from an administration and handling point of view. And so when I see them, say, why do I need this and why do I need this? It's not really necessary. And of course, I have the ambition to to try to open the games up the doors to the games up to many people i want to reach many people bring the enjoyment of the games to many people and so yes it was what i did with el dorado with the deck building game or with uh, my city with legacy games is deliberately going there and saying okay i would have liked to invent and establish the genre, but you unfortunately there are many <laughs> very talented and very uh, excellent people out there ingenious people out there so you can't have it all for yourself but the second best you can do is probably take some of this and give it a new direction or add something new to it and that's what I have very deliberately done with these and it, it suits me very well because I I can this is what I like I like uh, simplicity and try to make the game deep out of a few... Rules, because you set up the complexity, you set up the players against each other, uh, or do it uh, a cooperative. But I don't need all the little details. I, I can, I my mind doesn't want them, so I, I drive them out. Yes.
0: Yes, that that kind of elegance and and simplicity and and, and boiling things down to their essence is definitely one of the design aesthetics I appreciate the most, um, and it's the hardest to do well. Um, so uh I guess then maybe I'll, I let's dig into a couple of the uh, of specific examples of these things. I think there's some areas um I think I'd like to to cover kind of scoring systems and then talk a little bit about kind of auction drafting and and kind of bidding as a category. And you know you're 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 very well known for innovating um scoring systems and using those to drive play. Um you know Tigris and Euphrates probably the most famous example though there are plenty that to choose from in terms of where your your lowest ranking category is the thing that scores which forces you to care about a lot of variety of you know all of everything that's going on how, how do you how do you approach scoring systems or is there a way that you um you know will, will it will it often be a starting point for you or will other you know how do you how does you use that to drive player behavior or uh create create the incentives that you want
1: it's very difficult to say what a starting point is i mean something innovative usually the scoring I mean, very often the scoring system isn't because it comes in later in the process but for me the ambition is um okay so can i not do a simple hook which simply turns everything on its head and suddenly it's you you know you mean you have a very relatively you know it's euphrates and Tigris is not a very simple game but it you have this where you get points in different colors and all and suddenly you say but only your weakest color counts and it puts everything on its head because you say okay i've already got re- enough red uh, cubes points but i could get another seven here or only one green but I'm short and green, and so suddenly it's, it it puts the whole situation um, into perspective, and you have very different objectives and just maximizing everything. And so this is, and yes, you, you said it very much how I believe Uh, it's the scoring drives the gameplay that's what I want to do yes so if I need (laughs) green then seven red should not tempt me yes and I need the one green Uh, but uh, but it it is counterintuitive because usually it's just more 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 and so I've this is an aspect which sometimes comes later during the gameplay to say okay now how do I Put this extra twist in there in samurai yes you have to dominate one of the dimensions so you can be uh, on the uh, on the farming side on the buddha side or some on the, on the and so one of these you have to dominate you have to have more than everybody else but that's boring because that makes a very extreme strategy so then you say but that's only for you to qualify for winning. What really counts then is how much you have done in the others. So if you are trying to get too much of others, then you might not qualify. You you might have the best others, but you're not there. Or you might qualify easily and safely, but then, and you know, don't know because there's uncertainty. You can't just count it out. It's not open. So it's all these twists which are these are the pearls, and these are the tr- precious to find. Yes. But yes, I think they're very important to differentiate a game and make it exciting.
0: Yeah, and, and I, I I think that it ties in nicely to the other topic I kind of want to r- bring in here, this kind of you know, auctioning, drafting, and bidding, where that that differential value between the players is one of the things that drives and makes that so exciting, right? That suddenly this single card tile, whatever, right? I mean, I've, I've played probably more hours of raw than maybe any of your other games. Although it's, it's tough. It's a lot of hours I have played. Um, uh, and so the, that, that there's the, the uncertainty of the tension of when this thing might end and the ramping up of that, the difference of what it's, what a card or tile or thing is worth to me compared to somebody else, how that scoring, you know, kind of become ramps up and increases towards the end. So there's, there's a lot of elements that come to that when you, if you're advising someone, to approach a game of this category. Um, are there other kinds of principles or tips that you'd advise in terms of how one should approach making a really exciting game um, with with one of these? You could it can cover all or cover an individual of this kind of drafting, auctioning, bidding type systems. Okay. I have two non-points on this first. First of all, don't approach it because
1: they're a bit out of fashion. (laughs) They were very fashionable (laughs) in the 90s. Uh, And the second one is, if you want to do it, study mathematics and then study auction theory, and you find lots of examples. None of these are helpful or relevant. Um, (laughs) There is something to it. In the 90s, I mean, I made made a number of the auction games, and modern art probably being the archetype of it, uh, with so many different auctions in there. And, you mentioned Ra. I mean, what fascinates me about Ra is there's again a twist in there. I mean, I like the twists. These are fundamental twists. These are not side twists. The twist in Ra, it's an auction game. You have only three values, three suns, which, which you can bid during one epoch, one kingdom. And when you auction, when you bid for something, you're not only getting the tiles for your civilization, but you're also getting the suns for the next kingdom, for the next epoch. And so whenever somebody wins the bid, they put their sun, so their bidding value, in the middle. And this next auction, this one is handed out for the next round. So if somebody gets something with a very low sun, then you know you will be weak next epoch. And therefore, you need to have something quite valuable to get in tiles. Whereas if there is the top sun in there, uh, I've seen people just bidding if there was no tile at all. They just say, I want the sun. I want to be strong next time. And so it's not just the values you get, but you also get future bidding power. And weighing this off against each other, it's, this, it's so easily done, but it is so tricky when you play it. And that's exactly these hooks. I mean, they're easily done to say only the weakest color counts in Tigers and But it's so really difficult to plan ahead what you get in so. So these are the... What I want to build into all games, and I filled them into these auction games. Now, there are a, a lot of very exciting books about auction auction theory, which I've only studied recently, so I didn't this is not my starting point for for the for the games because it becomes too subtle and too um, detailed uh, these different auction mechanisms. Um, but you can get inspiration from there. But I think the the design about auction games uh, is much more to avoid some pitfalls. Um, You need a hook. Just whoever bids the most gets it and whoever gets the bids the most gets It's kind of boring, so you need some extra quirk. But one thing is very important. Some people love to bid and love to win bids. And if you allow from a system point of view, that one player destroys the game by unreasonably always overbidding and cutting the other people out from the game, then the game does not work. So you need to have kind of something defeating that people run out of resources, but then if they overbid once for ignorance, they shouldn't be out of the game. So you need to find something that people, if they are unreasonable and want to win everything, hurt themselves and are limited by the system. Yes. And... That, so that everybody, so that I can do a reasonable bid, if everybody is overbidding, and we see that in, in bubbles uh, anywhere on the markets, yes, uh, but if everybody's overbidding and I want to play reasonable, then I just sit there and can never win an auction. This is the very risky thing when you play auction games with many players, because usually only one player wins the auction so when you play with four or five players it can take quite a while you're involved in the process until you actually get a result from it and so and that led to me experimenting with um having uh in amon ray for example having uh, everybody bidding some in the auction. Yes? So you have a simultaneous auction where everybody bids and if they overbid you, you get your token back, you bid something else. And when nobody wants to change anything anymore, then the situation is stabilized and everybody gets what they want. So the last player always gets it, so to speak, for free because he goes somewhere else and says, okay, you, you overbid me there, I go somewhere there, I don't pay anything for it, you get it for free. Um, and so it's a self-balancing mechanism. Uh, and that is interesting because everybody's in it, everybody gets something. Uh, So I've said a lot about auction systems. It wasn't very structured, um, but it's it's just aspects which come to mind. Of course, you said more, you said drafting, um, bidding is auction. So, of course, you can disguise auctions in many different ways, and I think that's also the right way at the moment, where pure auction systems are not so much popular or not so much liked so there there are different trends and different uh, likings in the gaming industry of the gamers in the population of the community of those who are multipliers and shout aloud that doesn't necessarily mean that that is the case for the general public where you can get very big sales but where you have lots of hidden treasures which are not being recognized or not being seen worthy worthy of recognizing by the people who shout the loudest
0: yeah so that's that's a great topic uh, you know we're we're, we're running a long time but since you brought it up i think understanding um, how do you think about how do you think about trends, right? Even if it's a you're excited about auction games now, it's it's out of vogue, so you got to disguise it if you want it. And how do you think about you know playing to that vocal audience, the the board game geek enthusiasts of the world, versus more family crowds, versus mass market? Like, how do you think about when you're putting your energy into designs, you know, assuming you don't have a contract with a publisher or whatever? To, to, where do you see the industry going, and and how do you approach those kinds of trends? Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean. This is the the real um, challenge, and essentially it's impossible. Um, Everybody knows it's impossible to foresee trends and to see where it's going. The only people who don't believe it's impossible are the marketing people who always tell you what it is. They can explain everything wonderfully in hindsight, but they never get the the future right. So you have to ask for the hindsight as well. Uh, sorry. Yes, Mark.
0: Predicting the future right. in hindsight is a is a is a really great skill. I have that one. Too. Yes. Yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I and mean, explaining why everything happened in the high in hindsight is is very good, but you can never prove that that was the real reason. The, the proof is if your models work, if you can predict the future, and they can't. Uh, so, uh, of course, the ambition we we talked about it to to set new trends, to find some groundbreaking new. Well, as Richard did, Richard with uh, collectible card games is the archetype of that, I mean, uh, creating whole industries of it. Me telling Richard that I think mo- magic will not fly was my greatest blunder, probably. <laughs> uh, but yeah, <laughs> it's maybe most too innovative. I didn't see the potential of it. Uh, so, that, uh, so much about expert opinions, yes. Uh, so, that brings us back to trends again, yes. So, um, sometimes trends are just lucky occurrences when you have a big quiz show or the big brother or something and it suddenly is is a good hit on T V or something and the first public and, last and it's a big sell. And then all the others run after it. Yes, I mean it's the same with the um, exit games. Yeah, we see. We see. Uh, yeah. So uh, it, it was a big trend, but uh, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and a lot of, I mean, a lot of people said abstract games don't don't sell. And then we had blockus, and we had ingenious. Yes, and then suddenly uh, it took off, and people understood that. Uh, I mean, not to speak about uh, cooperative games, uh, where I I do actually claim that I made the first um, serious and really workable um, cooperative game is the lord of
0: the rings this is, yeah. the, this yeah. is the lord of the rings uh yeah. game from yeah i love that game I absolutely bring yeah, it. because yeah. i
1: remember that uh, even the jury for the game of the year the journalist said yeah, yeah you can play it once and then it's boring yes and so how can this work but people this was completely novelty yes and then afterwards they gave me the prize for um, for gaming literature yes so it's it's uh so this is this is the issue with innovation if you're too innovative uh, people don't find the access to it. and You might just fail because you, people don't take the gap, yes? So when you talk to publishers, they always want innovation, but not too much, of course. It still needs to be in the normal realm. Uh, so creating a new trend is essentially impossible. I mean, if you have a brown, groundbreaking... Uh, I mean, what did I think about legacy? I thought, what kind of a nonsense is this when I saw the first game? I didn't believe... I mean, yes, so... I think I should always look at these, which I create as non-flyers, see as non-flyers, like collectible card games or legacy, and change my mind and jump on them. But uh, staying with the topic, it is extremely difficult to forecast. I think it is impossible to forecast. The future is not determined. Uh, otherwise, people the future would be determined if you could forecast it. So it's it's just watching... And seeing what there is, and very often uh, the situation has proven that you don't have to be the first one to do something. I mean, Mm -hmm. you look at uh, Steve Jobs and you look at uh, things where people see there is a trend, there is something good, and then use your expertise to see some mushrooms which popped up somewhere and really culture them and nurture them. yes, And so... um, that's that's another way to do things, as I did with El Dorado and with, with my city. Yes, but um, it's impossible. I think trends are essentially lucky, or they are driven by over all overall life because technology goes in there. So new possibilities, what is available now? I mean, what uh, what uh, artificial intelligence does, we don't know, uh, and how that influences gaming, how would that be integrated in the game will all need to be proven, and so
0: yeah i think that's i think that's i think that's right Uh, uh, you know both the the you know if there is a new category new trend new thing is there something you can apply your specific expertise to to cultivate your corner of that new universe um you know spending uh a lot of time i like i really do try to focus on what are the new technologies and what is available now that wasn't before because that's most likely going to be the fertile ground right and even in scientific uh, exploration. A lot of people end up discovering the same thing within reasonably close periods of time because the the precursor knowledge and yes. the precursor technology is there, so it's ripe for the taking. And so I think that's a really great space to focus on. Um, but I have, yeah, I have found that the times where I try to consciously chase a trend uh, has never worked well for me. It's always uh, I have to be something I'm genuinely excited about, or there's something you know technologically that I'm really interested in
1: you have to be true to yourself if you start bending yourself and trying to create something to please others or win awards it's not going to happen
0: yeah okay that's a uh, I think a great place to to start to wrap up um i know we only have a little bit of time is there um, anything that you would like to say to the audience or places where they can go to uh, find your games or hear about your latest stuff is there anywhere we'd like to direct people before we uh, wrap up
1: I think BoardGameGeek is, is the, the one place which is unmatched and where people can get all the news. And uh, my message is just don't stop playing and uh, enjoy the games. Uh, take the games you like best. It doesn't matter who invented them, who designed them. Find your own uh, likings uh, and uh, play games. This is one of the best things we can do in today's world with all the madness going on. I think as long as people sit along on a, around one table and play a game together, the world will be a better place.
0: Yes, that's wonderful. And you have created so much of that opportunity for play, connection, and joy for myself, for millions and millions of people all around the world. So I just want to say thank you and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I say thank you to you and I say thank you to all the players. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you want to support the podcast, please rate, comment, and share on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever device you're listening on. Listener reviews and shares make a huge difference and help us grow this community and will allow me to bring more amazing guests and insights to you. I've taken the insights from these interviews along with my 20 years of experience in the game industry and compressed it all into a book with the same title as this podcast, Think Like a Game Designer. In it, I give step-by-step instructions on how to apply the lessons from these great designers and bring your own games to life. If you think you might be interested, you can check out the book at thinklikeagamedesigner.com or wherever fine books are sold.